Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 20 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2012 issue. Note that you will hear a transition tone between the summaries. Let's get started. Physicians often base their selection of antidepressant medication on a patient's history of medication response, returning to medications that were effective and avoiding those that did not work. There are few data, however, on how accurately patients are able to recall response to past depression treatments. As part of a larger study supported by the National Institute of Mental Health examining predictors of depression treatment response, Simon and colleagues asked patients to recall response to past antidepressant treatment and then compared their responses to standardized outcome questionnaires in the patient's medical records. Agreement between patients' recall and medical records was generally poor not significantly better than chance. Agreement was just fair for treatments within the last six months and was about zero for treatments more than six months previous. Interestingly, agreement was no better for the subgroup of patients who were very confident of their recollections. While these results may seem surprising at first, they are actually consistent with what research has shown about accuracy of recall for past depression. Recall is generally good over periods of three to six months, but is moderate to poor for periods longer than one year. People generally tend to under-remember past episodes of depression, Although this tendency makes life difficult for researchers, it's a very good thing for humans in general. For clinicians, this study indicates that the traditional practice of asking patients about response to past treatments may have little value. The authors emphasize that if clinicians want to use past treatment response as a guide to treatment selection, they should probably rely more on medical records. Co-occurring depression is common in patients seeking treatment for anxiety. However, the literature about the effects of depression on anxiety treatment outcomes is inconclusive. In the current study funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors evaluated prescriptive and prognostic effects of depression on anxiety treatment outcomes in a large primary care sample. Data were analyzed from a randomized, controlled effectiveness trial that compared two interventions, coordinated anxiety learning and management, referred to here as CALM, and usual care. The study enrolled 1,004 patients who had generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and or social anxiety disorder. They were treated for 3 to 12 months with calm or usual care. Outcomes were evaluated by blinded assessment at 6, 12, and 18 months. 
effects of baseline major depressive disorder on anxiety symptoms, anxiety-related disability, and response and remission rates were evaluated. The results show that MDD did not moderate the effects of the CALM intervention in comparison to usual care on anxiety symptoms, anxiety-related disability, or response or remission rates. Significantly greater improvements in anxiety symptoms and anxiety-related disability were observed in depressed patients regardless of treatment assignment. However, in cross-sectional analyses, depressed patients displayed significantly higher anxiety symptom scores and anxiety-related disability scores at baseline and at all subsequent assessments. Depressed patients also displayed significantly lower remission rates at each follow-up. The authors conclude that their study supports the use of interventions such as CALM for patients with co-occurring depression. Although stimulants have been shown to be effective and safe for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, a significant percentage of adults with ADHD either do not respond to or do not tolerate these treatments. However, the magnitude of effective non-stimulants in adult ADHD is less than that of stimulants, highlighting the importance of developing safe and effective non-stimulant alternatives. In a study funded by Alcobra, Dr. Iris Manner and colleagues conducted a six-week randomized control study of a non-stimulant agent, metadoxine extended release, in 120 adults with ADHD. The immediate release form of metadoxine has been used in the treatment of acute alcohol intoxication and alcohol withdrawal syndrome for more than 30 years. Compared with placebo, metadoxine extended release resulted in significantly lower total ADHD symptom scores a higher response rate, and improvement on scales measuring attention and quality of life. Improvements in ADHD symptoms were significant as soon as two weeks after the beginning of treatment. The authors also found that metadoxine extended release was generally well tolerated. There remains controversy about whether bipolar disorder is more often underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed. Because some depressed patients have histories of unrecognized mania or hypomania, proper diagnostic evaluation of mood disorders requires assessing lifetime manic or hypomanic episodes. Screening questionnaires have gained popularity for simplifying this effort, but they are not proxies for diagnostic interviews. Self-report instruments such as the Mood Disorders Questionnaire, or MDQ, can rule in true bipolar cases in the general population, but may be less effective in discriminating bipolar disorder from other existing psychiatric conditions. In particular, until diagnoses are established, excessive alcohol or drug use can cause symptoms mimicking bipolar disorder, creating nosologic confusion. To shed greater light on diagnostic obstacles, 
the investigators in this CME offering administered the MDQ to 113 adults hospitalized for mood or anxiety and substance use problems. A psychiatrist then reviewed and clarified patient self-ratings by using the MDQ as an interview tool. Only about 4 in 10 patients whose self-ratings were above threshold actually met DSM-IV-TR criteria for bipolar disorder, according to the interview. For true bipolar disorder cases, self-rated and clinician-rated MDQ scores were almost identical. But for non-bipolar cases, self-ratings were significantly higher than clinician ratings. Most often, false positive MDQ self-ratings resulted from patients endorsing mania symptoms that arose during intoxication or withdrawal states. While self-rated scores poorly predicted true cases, clinician-rated scores highly differentiated true from false cases. The authors conclude that self-rated responses to diagnostic screens for bipolar disorder should not automatically be accepted at face value among mood-disordered patients with substance misuse. Probing of diagnostic criteria after initial screening may greatly improve diagnostic accuracy. To receive CME credit, read this article at psychiatrist.com and take the post-test. Recent studies in nursing homes and outpatient settings have addressed the importance of gender differences in disease course and in the behavioral and psychological symptoms of patients with dementia. However, similar studies among hospitalized populations are scarce. A group of researchers from Japan reviewed the medical records of patients hospitalized for treatment of behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia to clarify whether gender influenced symptoms and treatment outcomes. They found that men were more likely than women to present with aggressiveness and were less likely than women to present with paranoia, hallucinations, affective disturbances, or anxieties. Men were also less likely to have a favorable discharge, that is, a discharge to their own home or care facility. The investigators believe that the aggression in the male patients could have affected the likelihood of favorable discharge. They conclude that more effective treatment options and strategies for aggressiveness might be needed for male patients with behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Brain magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, and genetic workup have been conducted by many clinicians to evaluate cognitive impairment in the elderly. It is not difficult to find white matter hyperintensities via brain MRI and to find the apolipoprotein E or APOE epsilon 4 allele in relation to cognitive impairment among the elderly. What then is the relationship between these findings and cognitive phenotypes? 
Of the participants in a dementia cohort study in South Korea, which was supported by the Ministry of Health and Welfare, over 5,000 elderly subjects were studied who had available data for APOE genotype and white matter hyperintensities. A standardized cognitive test score covering the domains of language, memory, attention, and frontal executive function was the primary outcome measure. Results indicated that severe white matter hyperintensities appear to be predominantly associated with frontal executive dysfunction, irrespective of the presence of the APOE Epsilon 4 allele. Perhaps more interesting is the fact that white matter hyperintensity severity and APOE Epsilon 4 had an interactive effect on memory function, with white matter hyperintensity severity affecting memory impairment only in APOE Epsilon 4 non-carriers. The authors believe that current evidence supports the disassociation of APOE and white matter hyperintensities relative to cognitive performance, a finding that may be helpful for clinicians in predicting characteristics of cognitive impairment as affected by APOE epsilon 4 allele or white matter hyperintensities. Recent studies have demonstrated benefits of cognitive intervention in mild cognitive impairment. However, few studies have determined the long-term effects of intervention on cognition, the conversion rate to Alzheimer's disease, and the role of early intervention. In a study from Germany, 24 participants with amnestic mild cognitive impairment were randomly assigned to receive a cognitive intervention either at the beginning of the study or after an eight-month time lag. The intervention included training in formal mnemonic memory techniques and informal activities fostering social and cognitive engagement. The primary outcome measure was change in cognitive functioning according to the mini mental state examination and the cognitive subscales of the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale. The study also looked at conversion to Alzheimer's disease. Follow-up assessment was done at 15 months and 28 months. Data for the 18 participants at the end of the study revealed a significant effect on cognitive function in the early intervention group. Participants in the later intervention group seemed to benefit less than those in the early intervention group. Six of 12 participants in the later intervention group developed Alzheimer's disease during the 28-month study. The authors conclude that the benefits of the six-month cognitive intervention appeared to be preserved over extended periods, and that early intervention may delay conversion to Alzheimer's disease. Revisions in the way that insomnia is diagnosed and classified are planned for DSM-5. Instead of specifying whether insomnia is primary or secondary, the new insomnia disorder criteria suggest that if sleep disturbance is persistent and impairs daytime functioning, then it should be recognized and treated. 
Using data from a large population survey, a group from England sought to determine how daytime impairment, as defined by the new DSM-5 criteria, may vary according to what type of insomnia an individual has. The study was based on the Great British Sleep Survey, completed online by over 10,000 people. Using the DSM-5 criteria, investigators classified the respondents into those with and those without insomnia disorder. They also determined what kind of insomnia the respondents had. For example, problems falling asleep versus staying asleep. The study also looked at comorbid mental and physical health problems. These insomnia subgroups were then compared on areas of daytime functioning, such as mood, work productivity, and interpersonal relationships. The authors found that the daytime consequences of insomnia disorder are most pronounced for those who have problems both initiating and maintaining sleep, those with poor mental health, and those who have had insomnia since childhood. Postpartum depression is a controversial diagnosis. Little scientific evidence exists to justify it as a distinct subtype of major depression. Current evidence indicates that one quarter to one half of major depression cases in the postpartum period actually began during pregnancy. The authors of this study hypothesize that major depression with onset during pregnancy has different clinical features than major depression with onset in the postpartum period. To test their hypothesis, the authors performed a chart review study supported by the DeWitt Wallace Reader's Digest Endowment Fund in which they compared clinical characteristics of two groups of women totaling 229 subjects. One group had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder that began during pregnancy. The other group's depression began during the first year postpartum. The authors found several differences between the two groups. Women with major depressive episodes beginning during pregnancy more often had histories of major depression and recent psychosocial stressors. In the postpartum onset group, Obsessive-compulsive symptoms and psychotic symptoms were more common. With regard to timing, 94% of postpartum major depressive episodes began within the first four months postpartum. The authors conclude that onset of major depression during pregnancy is more similar to major depression that occurs at other times of life and is more often a recurrent illness, while onset of depression during the postpartum period is more often a first episode and has distinct clinical features. The authors recommend that women with a history of major depression or postpartum depression should be monitored closely for relapse of major depression during pregnancy. This month's ASCP Corner by Holly Schwartz and Andrea Fagiolini looks at how bipolar disorder affects physical health and increases medical burden. Studies show that people with bipolar disorder die earlier than those without psychiatric disorders 
and the authors note that cardiovascular diseases are the primary culprits driving this premature mortality. Cardiovascular risk factors, particularly obesity, also appear to be associated with poor response to psychiatric treatment. Cardiovascular risk in people with psychiatric illness probably results from many factors, including smoking and diabetes, as well as exposure to psychotropic medication. The higher risk could also be related to an increased prevalence of other factors such as inflammation. The authors urge psychiatrists to collaborate with primary care physicians to facilitate cardiovascular risk management and treatment for their patients with bipolar disorder. Challenges and possible solutions for accomplishing this goal are discussed in the article. Don't miss the Practical Psychopharmacology column for December in which Dr. Andrade discusses possible treatment interactions in patients who have both depression and heart disease. He touches on the positive aspects of using SSRI treatment in these patients, but he also points to possible adverse events, such as an increased bleeding risk in patients who are on antiplatelet therapy. In closing, be sure to take a look at our book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and much, much more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. <laughs>